All right, so we're going to go ahead. I'm going to try to wrap up my Baptist Heritage session tonight. And so if you were here last two weeks ago, I taught on a lesson. And the handout, if you would like one of those handouts, is out on the desk. And I have a handout for tonight. Did anybody pick one up on the way in? Um, can you grab some? That'd be great, Cammie. So let me review just for a minute while while she's uh, uh, getting those handouts for tonight. So last time that I talked, I basically talked about how how the gospel got started and, and what Christ's promises to the church was and how did the church get started. And Christ gave three promises to the church. And so real quickly, let me, let me just kind of work through these. Christ promised the church that the church would always prevail. Okay, The gates of hell would not prevail against the church, so the church is always going to be there. The church is always going to be present. Satan may try to wipe it out, but it is not going to be wiped out because Christ promised that they would prevail. And then he also told the church that his words would not pass away. Very comforting. And then he also told the church that he would always be with them. Matthew 28, 20. Of course, we know that, you know, when we accept Christ as our Savior, we have the Holy Spirit that comes and lives inside us, and he will be with us forever, basically. So God, the Holy Spirit, cannot leave us. And what a, what a comfort that is. Whatever situation that you're in, you can always count on the fact that Jesus Christ will never leave you nor forsake you. And so when you have people all around that, that say, well, wait a minute, you can't know what church you need to go to because it's it's been too much, too many things have happened, too much uh, water under the bridge. Well, according to Christ's words, his church would always prevail. And then they might say, well, you know, you, you don't know what Bible to have because, you know, everything's been mixed up with the Bible also. Well, Christ said his words would not pass away. And so these people don't have a leg to stand on. So Christ promises the church these promises, which will help them down through history and help them to continue to do what he wants them to do. And then we talked about how the New Testament churches were started uh, from Jerusalem, and from there they scattered out into Antioch and other places like that. We talked about the traits of these New Testament churches, and you can find a lot of the traits, a lot of information about the early church by this little pamphlet or this little booklet, and you can buy that at our resource center if you don't have one. It's called The Trail of Blood, and it really lays out uh, just a... a a bloodline going back to to the the first church, and yet the bloodline's not by our blood. It's by it's by persecution and blood being spilt, and so that's the line that that they're following. And so you can see all the traits of New Testament churches, basically the same things that we we uh, believe today here at this church. And then we talked about how the gospel got from Jerusalem to Rome. And can anybody re- tell me how far that was? Does anybody remember? 1,250 miles. And that's all by ship, so that was a straight shot, right? And so, um, and then we talked about the gospel just scattering around the world. And so the gospel got from Rome, yeah, they're up here, from Rome to Wales, 
which is part of England. And can anybody remember how far that was? I'm asking questions tonight. I always like to do that. That was a thousand miles. Okay. So tonight we're going to be talking about how the gospel got to America. And guess how far that was from London and England? A little over 3,000 miles. And so it's interesting. I don't know if you've ever thought about how did the gospel, how did churches go from country to country? And, and you know, what, where all did they go? And yet we just have a few stories of where they've went. I, I can imagine there's a lot more. But history reveals that the gospel got to the island of England before 100 A.D. And at the end of, of my session uh, two weeks ago, I had a little video of a, of a young lady by the name of Mary Jones that wanted a Bible in, Welsh, in the Welsh language. And so we watched that video. And as a result of her going to a, a pastor that had had some Bibles that, that was for sale that they had gotten from a printing house, as a result of that meeting, there was a Bible society formed in, in England which was called, uh, if I remember correctly, the, the English, the Foreign English, how did it go? The English and Foreign Bible Society. And that was formed about 1710. I'm sorry, 1810. And in 1830, the Trinitarian Bible Society, the one that we work with very, very closely, was formed out, come, that came out of that, uh, that first society. And so we see the gospel, we left the gospel there uh, about 1800 in England the last time I spoke. So tonight we're going to talk a little bit about how the gospel and churches got to America and how they really formed the basis for our country here. So tonight's going to be kind of like a civics class. We're going to be talking about several things that go on with that. So you have, you have your hand out there, it says... Uh, the two ways the gospel was spread down throughout history, number one, was by people fulfilling the, and you got two blanks. I'm going to ask you guys, what do you think goes in those two blanks? The Great Commission. Okay. The Great Commission. And then number two, by persecution. So persecution goes in that second blank. And so you'll see this early on. If you have your Bible with you, which I hope you do, turn over to Acts chapter 8, and we're going to read 1 through 4. Acts chapter 8, and verses 1 through 4. And Saul was consenting unto his death. His death there was Stephen's. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. And as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house, inhaling men and women, committed them to prison, Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. And so, wow, what a great example we have here. that church was scattered by persecution, and when people went, wherever they went, they could not 
keep quiet. They was telling people about how Jesus had died and paid for our sins and was buried and rose again. And because of that, our sins were forgiven. And people could have their sins forgiven and have a relationship with him. With him. And, you know, that's something I think we take for granted a lot. You know, God in heaven came to this earth, died in our place so that we can have what? A home in heaven? Yes. Eternal life? Yes. Freedom? Yes. The Holy Spirit? Yes. But you know really what the focus was? To have a relationship with God himself. And I think we miss that a lot. But it's going to take all eternity for that to work out. But yet the purpose of, of, of all that was, first of all, to restore that relationship that Adam had had with him before the fall. That's what we need to pay close attention to. That's what we need to, to think about. But anyway, um, the persecution here uh, was against the church, and the church scattered. And then again, like I said, uh, they were fulfilling the Great Commission while they were being persecuted. But if you go back to the Old Testament and you look at the Jews, the Jews in the Old Testament were God's people, and they were God's chosen people, and they had a, they had a commission also, and it was to take God's laws to the world and basically to proselytize the world and show them who God was. And yet the Jews did not do a very good job with that. It was the Jews kind of neglected that. And then towards even the end, or even all the way through it, the Jews had this attitude like, you know, they were better than the other group. And even during Jesus' day, you know, a Jew and a Gentile just didn't mix because the Jewish people considered a Gentile to be a dog. They just thought they were a third-rate citizen. And yet I wonder if, you know, how God did that with the church today. He just didn't uh, send them out with the Great Commission. He also realized, you know, I'm going to have to help them out a little bit of getting the gospel out. And so I'm going to allow them to be persecuted to help get the gospel out also. So what is persecution? So it's the act of pursuing to inflict punishment, to inflict harm, pain, or death. Okay, that's what persecution is. And so um, let's go ahead and turn over to 2 Timothy 3.12. We're not going to go to a lot of Bible places or verses tonight, but we will do a few. 2 Timothy 3.12. And this verse says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer what? Persecution. Okay? So I left a long blank across your page. And I want you to think for a minute. What kind of persecution do you endure? Because when I look at this, When I look at my life, I really don't think I have to endure a lot of persecution. I know there's things that go on. When uh, you hear Pastor Brian talk about going to the City Union Mission and preaching, preaching, a lot of us guys learned how to preach at the City Union Mission. And after I'd been put on a schedule to go uh, about 
uh, once a month. Uh, I was actually preaching there at one time, and I think Pat was with me, and we were going down. And my wife told me, she said, you know what, Bob? She goes, I know when it's your week to preach. I go, why is that? And she goes, because everything's hitting the fan here at the house that week. She said, that week, I just can tell that there is persecution hitting us because that particular week. And so I kind of watched it for a little bit, and I'm like, you know what, you're right. It seems like, you know, it just, it was uh, out of all the weeks of the month, that was the one week that it seemed like we kept getting, uh, I don't want to say attacked, but basically we were. But, you know, after a while, you just kind of, it just kind of blends in with everything else. But I don't think on the most part here in the, in the United States, we suffer the persecution that a lot of our, our friends across the ocean does. And I know... Uh, uh, Lauren was in uh, India for a while. Those people suffer persecution. People in Nepal, people in Africa, other places around the world that we deal with, they suffer in persecution a lot more than we do. So, And I think one of the reasons that we don't is because of the country that we live in and because of how they've treated the gospel. Uh, For the last 2,000 years, Christians have lost their jobs, I'm just reading off the handout here, guys. Their homes, their land, their possessions, families, and their lives by not willing to compromise on God's word. These people were willing to obey Christ's word no matter the cost, believing that following Christ was more important than their physical situation. That's what goes in your blank. All through... Uh, our history, all through church history for the last 2,000 years, persecution has been prevalent against the Bible believers. People left Wales and England and the rest of Europe and the world to come to America to escape persecution, to be able to worship according to what the Bible says and to have a better chance for a better life. And many Christians found America to be no better than the area that they had left. And it would take years of struggling for religious freedom, for charters required, and a revolution even before religious freedom would be the law of the land. And Bible believers, basically Baptists, were right smack in the middle of it. So I want to talk a little bit tonight about... uh, uh, some persecution, the Baptist, and things that went on at the beginning of our country that maybe you haven't heard before. So bear with me a little bit. And so I want to talk about persecutions in Europe and England. The name Anabaptist was given to a Bible-believing group of people down through history, primarily known as the Waldenses. And they were referred to as Anabaptists, primarily after the Reformation, because they rebaptized all who joined them from other churches that were not like-minded. Kind of sounds like us today, okay? And as a result of this, they were heavily persecuted because of this and the fact that they did not recognize these churches as true biblical churches. Not only were they persecuted by the Catholic Church, but also by all the Protestant churches which came out of it. So I want you to think about this. Up until about 1500 A.D., when you went to church in some town, 
you, either, you only had two choices. You either went to the Catholic Church or you went to a Bible-believing church. That was it. That, I mean, that's just the way it was. And then after the Reformation, when, when a lot of the people began to realize that uh, the Catholic Church needed to be reformed, and, and well, uh, that's what they thought anyway, you started to see these people protesting the Catholic Church, and they were called Protestants. They were protesters. And so you've got the Lutheran Church. You've got the Anglican Church in England. You've got the Presbyterian Church. You've got, uh, you've got all these churches that came out of uh, the Catholic Church because they saw the fallacy of the Catholic Church. But the problem was they brought a lot of those false doctrines with them when they came. And so... Uh, the fact is, that is what a Protestant is. Now, as far as a Baptist or a Bible believer, Bible believers have never been Protestants. We've never come out of the Catholic Church. We've always been separate. And so one of the reasons, like I just mentioned, even back 200, 300 A.D., after the beginning of the, of the early church, there was a conflict between these two churches because one began to put tradition over the Bible and one church would say, no, we're going to stay with the Bible. And so when a person outside of a Bible-believing church, and I'm going to call it a Baptist church, when you came from another church, which was just one other one, that didn't believe like they did, first of all, they would check them to see do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? And number two, have you been scripturally baptized by a like-minded church? And since there's only two churches, they would always rebaptize them. Okay, because our Bible teaches us that when you accept Christ as your Savior, then you get baptized afterwards, not when you're younger before. And so, not only uh, was that kind of a slap in the face to to the other church but it also made them realize, well, this other church is calling us unscriptural and unbiblical and, and basically a false church. So there was a lot of tension as a result of that. And there's always been severe persecution between those two churches. Okay. As a result of the severe persecution, Baptists... Is, were longing to find a country that would allow them to worship freely in America, look like such a place. So let's talk a little bit about the Baptist in America. Well, first of all, when you think about, when you guys think about the beginning of our country, somebody throw me out uh, a time period or, or something that's going on. What do you think is, when you think about the beginning of our country, what comes out to mind? Crickets, okay. Uh, I'll tell you what I think anyway. I'm thinking the Revolutionary War. War. I'm thinking the, the Declaration of Independence, right? That was at the beginning of our country, right? So what year is the Declaration of Independence? I know you can help me out there. 1776, right? Is that right? Everybody on board. Okay, 1776 but yet there were Christians coming to America 150 years before that. During the 1600s, uh, people began to flock into the United States, many of them Baptists, many of them Bible believers. The Mayflower, everybody learned the Mayflower, and it's getting to be about Thanksgiving, right? So we get that story out again. 
And if you miss the story, just watch Peanuts. It'll be on there. Uh, but anyway, the Mayflower came over in 1620. And we know a lot of the people on the... Now, who was on the Mayflower? Pilgrims. Okay. Pilgrims was on the Mayflower. Pilgrims and Puritans, basically. And so they were fleeing England. They were fleeing the Church of England because they were protesting it. And so they were an offshoot of the Church of England, and they came to America in 1620. So not only were there pilgrims on that boat, there were or ship, there was Puritans, which is basically the same thing. So, and I know you're just dying to get all this information I'm throwing out tonight. Uh, the difference, can anybody tell me the difference between a pilgrim and a Puritan? Okay, you guys didn't do your homework, did you? I'll tell you. Uh, a pilgrim was out of the same Church of England, but they wanted to get completely away from the Church of England, have nothing to do with them, and they were strict to, to their traditions. They, they would follow them to the letter. Now, a Puritan at the same time was similar to them, but they still wanted to have some connection with the Anglican Church. They wasn't just as extreme as the pilgrims were, okay? But yet, uh, both of them were on the Mayflower as well as probably some Baptists that we could probably pull up if we could see it. And so, um, 1600s, uh, we began to see that there is uh, a lot of different people coming into to America, a lot of different... Uh, denominations, and uh, several of these people uh, got a foothold in, in America, and uh, specifically the Congregationalists, the Puritans. They, they became the state church of Massachusetts. And so in the 1600s, they basically, if you did not follow their way of, of church and religion, they would banish you from, from, the, from the state which the Baptists fit right in with that group. So they were banished from, when they were found out, were banished from Massachusetts. So uh, let me just read a few of these people that came to America that were Baptists. Number one, John Clark. He's a Baptist from Bedfordshire, England. He starts a church in Newport, Rhode Island in 1638. That's 138 years before the Revolutionary War. So, a long time ago, in 1665, Thomas Gould starts a Baptist church in Boston. 1663, John Miles from Wales organizes a Baptist church in Massachusetts. Thomas Griffith, a pastor from South Wales, came to Pennsylvania in 1701 along with 16 members of his church. They came to America on the ship James and Mary, and this church sent out 10 new churches, and by 1770, these, the amount of people, born-again uh, believers in these 10 new churches numbered over 650. So this church is a, a church that's sending out other churches. They also sent out churches to South Carolina, and one of these churches called itself the Church of Welsh Neck back in 1737. So Baptist churches began to expand to a large degree in the state of Virginia. Most of their heritage was from English and Welsh Baptists. In 1711, Abel Morgan of Wales 
a Baptist minister, came to Philadelphia to pastor a church there, and he writes a concordance to the Welsh Bible, and he prints it there in 1730. So again, we're seeing a lot of people from England, a lot of people from Wales move to America and begin to uh, uh, basically set up shop, set up churches, Bible-believing churches, and move forward. But in that time period, there's still some persecution going on. So in 1664, a law was passed in Massachusetts by the Massachusetts Bay Company, who were in league with the Congregationalists. Remember the Congregationalists? They were the Puritans. Uh, And it ordered that if any person within the state shall openly condemn or oppose the baptism of infants, there it is again. That's the one that's been all down through history that's been the problem here. If anyone would openly condemn or oppose the baptism of infants or go about secretly to seduce others from the appropriation or use thereof shall be sentenced to banishment. This law was directed directly at the Baptists. Baptists were fined, they were taxed, they were whipped, and they were banished. Not only that, but they were forced to pay taxes that funded the state-led churches and paid the pastors for the wages of their pastors. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine your taxes being used to pay for a different church than what you believed in and, and, and uh, went to and that you actually paid for their building and their, and their pastors? And so this went on for about 150 years, even in our country. Baptists were persecuted for the preaching of God's word. Now get this, on June the 4th, 1768, several pastors were arrested in Spotsylvania County, Virginia, and bound over for trial. 1768, okay? The crime accused of? Preaching the gospel of the Son of God in the colony of Virginia. Our own country, guys. It was at this trial that Patrick Henry, okay, any history buffs in here? Do you remember the guy, Patrick Henry? Give me liberty and give me death, or give me death. Okay, uh, he's he was an attorney, and we still like the guy. But he rode fifty miles on horseback to lead the defense of these these pastors that were put in jail. He poured out such an argument that the judge stopped him in the middle of his discharge and pronounced the sheriff to let the preachers go. He must have been something else. The persecution continued against the Baptists until the Constitution and the Bill of Rights were put in force. And so I'm going to talk about some of the groundwork for religious freedom in our, in our country. And a lot of it's going to deal with this charter that we see, number three on your handout, the Rhode Island Charter of 1663. Now, again, if, if you're a history person, you may like tonight, and if you don't care about history, you know, you, you, may, you may not get a lot out of it, but, but here's what I want you to get out of it. Our country is founded on Baptist principles. They don't teach you that in school. They don't teach you why our country is so great. The reason our country is so great is because of the Word of God and the Christians that are in this country. So the Rhode Island Charter of 1663 was a charter that was obtained by John Clark, 
one of the first Baptist preachers in, in our country. And John Clark was in the state of Rhode Island, and he, wanted, and he had been chased out of Massachusetts. So he wanted religious freedom for the state of, of uh, Rhode Island. So he goes over to the King of England. And for 13 years, he petitions the king to give him a charter for the state of Rhode Island to have religious freedom, something the world had never heard of. Well, after 13 years, the king of England, King Charles II, gave him the document that established religious freedom in our country, in the state of Rhode Island. And so Rhode Island used this charter that was given to them by the King of England for 180 years. 180 years after the, the 1663, this charter was still in effect. And so Thomas Jefferson gives John Clark credit in obtaining the charter, and he uses this charter as one of the sources which he derived the principles used in the Declaration of Independence. So there is a snowball effect taking place here. The principles of the Rhode Island Charter made their way into America's founding documents. We'll find them in in the Declaration of Independence. You'll see the principles in the Constitution, and you'll see the same principles in the Bill of Rights. So what that tells us today is that the principles of our American government are are largely Baptist because... The Rhode Island Charter was, for the most part, written by the Baptist minister, John Clark, who petitioned them from the King of England. Okay? Interesting. And so let me read just a little bit about this this document. I, I know I'm probably boring you to tears, but just hang with me a little bit. It says, Charles II, this is in 1663, Charles II, by the grace of God, King of England, Scotland, France, Ireland, apparently he had a monopoly of everything over there. I didn't realize he was the, the king of France and also, but he's the king of England, Scotland, France, and Ireland. He is the defender of the faith, or so he says. To all whom these present shall come greeting, he says, whereas we have been informed by the humble petition of our trusty and well-beloved subject, John Clark, and the rest of the purchasers and free inhabitants of our island called Rhode Island, and the rest of the colony of Providence Plantations in the Narragansett Bay in New England in America, that they, pursuing with peaceable and loyal minds their sober, serious, and religious intentions of godly edifying themselves and one another in the holy Christian faith and worship, as they were persuaded together with the gaining over and conversation of the poor, ignorant Indian natives, so it talks about even the Indians here, in whose parts of America to the sincere profession of obedience of the same faith and worship. And then it goes on for 13 pages, this document reads. And let me read a little bit from the next page over. And it says, Whereas in their humble address they have freely declared that is much on their hearts, if they may be permitted to hold forth a lively experiment that a most flourishing civil state may stand and best be maintained, and that among our English subjects with a full liberty and religious concernments, and that true piety rightly grounded upon 
gospel principles will give the best and greatest security to their sovereignty and will lay in the hearts of men the strongest obligations to true loyalty. Now know you that we, or we being willing to encourage the hopeful undertaking of our said loyal and loving subjects and to secure them in the free exercise and enjoyment of all their civil and religious rights. And then it goes on and on. This document, the Rhode Island Charter of 1663, I believe is probably the first document the world had ever produced of giving anyone religious freedom. Okay, And again, 1663, but yet it's going to take a long time to get into our constitution, into the laws of our land. So that was the first thing that we see here, the, the Rhode Island Charter of 1663. Okay. And then our next item on our, our page here is the Declaration of Independence. So the, again, the Declaration of Independence is, again, what year? 1776. Okay. And uh, in this article... How many of you have read the article, the transcript to the, the Declaration of Independence? You have one in your back pocket? No, I didn't think so. But uh, it, this is an amazing, amazing uh, 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 article to look at. And it wasn't until uh, God used a nation that was wanting uh, freedom from the country that they were in bondage to and kind of tied that in with religious freedom to get men to wake up and realize, you know, m- men need to have, number one, freedom to live their lives the way they want to and govern themselves the way they should, but then they also need religious freedom to, to govern their life the way that it should. Okay, uh, so the Declaration of Independence happened in about 1776. And if you go back and you look, you know, you go back and look at these men that, was, was, that signed uh, the Declaration of Independence. You're looking at people like Ben Franklin, George Washington, James Madison, and I may not have all the right ones in the group there, but all these men, if you look at most of them, most of them were religious men. Most of them went to church. But a lot of them grew up congregational. But one thing they realized was that men needed to have religion of freedom. And so they would fight for that later on. But uh, the Declaration of Independence happened in about 1776, like we've mentioned two or three times. And right before that time period was the Great Awakening. In the 1740s, there was two evangelists that was preaching across the New England era. And, and they were having great success. People were coming in to know Christ as their Lord and Savior, and it was called the Great Awakening. And the two men that I'm talking about are George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. Both of them grew up. Now get this. Both of them grew up in a Puritan or a congregational home. And yet, the reason they started to have success with their preaching because they began to preach the gospel. Now let that sink in. We have some congregational preachers to begin to preach the Bible, and they're starting to see success in their congregations, and it just started a movement that went across the New England states. Okay. 
Congregational was, uh, the Congregational Church was the Puritan Church, which was an offshoot of the Church of England. And when they came to America, that was the one that had the state church in Massachusetts. So they basically was running the churches and said, this is the churches that are sanctioned by the state of Massachusetts. It is the, basically it was, it was the Anglican church or what we would call, um, uh, somebody help me, what's, what's the Church of England called today? Ron, help me out here. The Episcopalian Church. Okay, the Episcopalian Church basically today is, is the Anglican Church. It was the church that Henry VIII started, and it, he, he broke off also off the Catholic Church. And if you remember why, it was because uh, his wife couldn't produce a, chi- a, a son for him, so he wanted a divorce, and so he wanted a divorce from the church, and the Catholic Church would not give it to him. And so he says, he thumbed his nose up at them and says, I'll start my own church and we'll call it the Church of England, which was just basically a Catholic church number two because they were basically the same thing. But the congregational church was basically that, that church. And so these two men grew up in a congregational church that they didn't teach the Bible like we do. They, it was more set on tradition, more set on rules and bylaws, and more, it was a strict church. And so these two men began to actually preach what the Bible said, and they started to have great success. And they had so much success that their own congregational churches threw them out. Can you imagine that? And so uh, the Great Awakening kind of goes through in the 1740s, which is, again, you know, a few years before the Revolutionary War, and at that time, um, at that time, people were getting saved, but they but they didn't know they they needed a good church to go to, and they didn't know what to do with them after they got saved. And so it wasn't until the Baptists began to get more influence into these states that that these people were starting to to move over to the Baptist church. And, of course, what does the Baptist church do with them? Not only they began to teach them the Bible, they began to disciple them. And then not only did they disciple them, they had their own institute. They taught their men, and then they sent them out, and other churches grew. When you look at the pattern of of church history down through history, the the way that the churches uh, reproduce themselves are by training up men and sending them out. Okay, that the congregational church and the other churches basically don't go that direction. But the Baptist church will teach the people and then send them out, start other churches. And, of course, that's what was happening. The Great Awakening got people started. They got they kind of got the ball rolling. And then the Baptists kind of came in and, and cleaned up and kept going strong. And so what we're seeing here during this time is the Baptists are having a large impact on their society and the states that they're in, okay? It's probably more than you wanted. But uh, the Rhode Island Charter gets us up to the Declaration of Independence. And if you go back and you study George Washington and you study the chaplain that was under George Washington, he was a Baptist. A lot of these men, uh, even though they may have not been Baptist, knew Baptist ministers, and respected them, and, and um, 
they, they had an ear to go to. And so the Declaration of Independence. Of course, we know that that, that was uh, our country decided to revolt against England. And so Congress in July the 4th of 1776. Let me just read a little bit of the Declaration of Independence. It says, The unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America... When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation." We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute a new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such a form. I'm going to stop there. So at that point, they were fighting against the tyranny of England. And basically, they lay out in the Declaration of Independence all their gripes of what they have with the king of England. Okay? And so... Um, all the reasons are given and listed out. And, you know, in school, I remember, you know, studying the, the Declaration of Independence. And, and the thing that they kept beating into our heads was the fact, the reason that we revolted against the, the king of England was because, can anybody tell me what you, what you were taught in school? And I'll tell you what I think. It was what? Taxation. Okay, so when we went to school, Pat's about the same age as I am, and so when we went to school, it was, oh, we revolted against the, the king of England because of the taxes. Taxes was 17 down the list. That's how far down the list they were. The number one reason was the fact that they were usurping power over the people. Kind of sounds like today. I'm not trying to stir up stuff today, but the reason they're wanting to get rid of the Constitution today is because it says when the government usurps power over the people, then it's the people's right to stand up against them and overthrow them. But that's what's in the Declaration of Independence, 1776. All right? So we'll keep moving on. We may, the good part is we may get out early tonight. I don't know. So I'm trying to uh, get through some of my uh, uh, notes that, I've, that I had taught on in, in our ABF class as we went through this a few weeks, uh, months ago. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the Constitution of the United States. Okay? So we talked about the Declaration just real briefly. And again, what I want to point out is it's that it's got principles in that Constitution which came out of the Rhode Island Charter, which was written by a Baptist minister, okay? It's got godly principles in it, okay? So the United States Constitution, 
was written by the delegates from 12 of the 13 colonies who met in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787. The intent of these delegates was to improve the existing Articles of Confederation of which the colonies had been running under since 1776. So upon attempting to revise those articles, the delegates decided that an entirely new constitution was needed. The new constitution was a combination of the Rhode Island Charter of 1663, the Declaration of Independence, the Virginia Plan, the Magna Carta, as well as others. James Madison penned the document. Thomas Jefferson, who wrote the Declaration of Independence, provided key input. John Adams wrote a paper in defense of the Constitution, also played a huge part. And our friend Patrick Henry played a huge part in supporting the inclusion of the Bill of Rights. The entire process took the delegates four months and was signed on September the 17th, 1787. So after, after the Revolutionary War, the delegates of the states got together and they were going to uh, update the Confederation papers that they were running off of, and they just decided to scrap them and come up with a brand new constitution. So not only was this constitution something that had never been put together by any country in the world, it was, it was a nightmare to produce because you had 13 different delegates from, from those states, and everyone had different opinions. All right? So when the Constitution was signed by the people that ratified it, it had to be ratified by the states. So then it had to go back to all of the states, and they had to approve it. And now there was a fierce debate over the Constitution as several states and a large percentage of citizens wanted more rights included in the Constitution for the people. So religious freedom was at the top of their list, especially for the Baptist. So the Constitution was in jeopardy of not passing until promises were made to make amendments. On June the 21st, the Constitution was finally ratified by the states and put into effect. All right. And so here's where it kind of gets interesting. Like Paul Harvey used to talk about the rest of the story. Uh, the Bill of Rights is, is really interesting, especially for us Bible believers today. So what are the Bill of Rights? Well, the, the Bill of Rights are, are ten... Uh, there's 10 of them. There are 10 rights that are added to the Constitution. They, after the Constitution was ratified, these were added a, a year or two later. But the Constitution would not have been ratified if they had not have been promised to have been put in. Now, can you imagine this? And I'll, I'll give you a little history here. Um, Patrick Henry, who was the first governor of Virginia was not for the Constitution because he believed it gave too much rights to the government. And he thought the state government needed to have more rights than what they had. Okay? Um, he was what they would call a federalist. He thought the Constitution gave way too much power to the, pres to the president and to the federal governments, and he supported 
the Bill of Rights. Then you have a pastor by the name of John Leland. John Leland was a Baptist pastor that lived from 1754 to 1841. Okay? And not only was he a pastor, but he was a well-known evangelist. And he had lived through the persecution in the state of Virginia of pastors being thrown in jail. And uh, he did not like the fact of, of a state-ran uh, church or society. So he was death, or definitely against that. So John Leland and James Madison, who was the writer of, of the Constitution, had a powwow. Uh, James Madison was running for office in Virginia. He had also written the con- most of the Constitution and was trying to get it passed. And John Leland told him that he would go against him if, uh, uh, because religious freedom was not in the Constitution. And the problem was the people of Virginia had the votes. The Baptist in the state of Virginia had the votes to, to not ratify the Constitution. They was holding it up. So the Constitution was, was trying to get signed, and the Baptist in Virginia said, we're not going to sign it unless you put religious freedom in the Constitution. Well, James Madison had a talk with John Leland, and he said, well, if you... Pro-, he goes, if, if you vote for me and send me to Congress... Even I don't quite understand that because he was still one of the writers of, con- of the Constitution. He says, if you put me in an office, I'll make sure that we get religious freedom in the first Bill of Rights when, we have that, when I get that opportunity. So it would be like this. Can you imagine a politician knocking on your house and you say, well, I don't like this bill that's in Congress right now and I, it doesn't have my support and, and the man goes, well, what would you like to have to, for me to get your support? And you to tell him, well, I'd like this, and I want this. I think this should be in the, and the politician goes, okay, I'll promise to put that in if you go ahead and send me to Washington. What would we say to him today? I'd say, no way, Turkey. We're not sending you. you you've got to do it now. But, but back then, there was a difference. When James Madison gave his word to the Baptist preacher John Leland that he would put religious freedom in the Bill of Rights, which didn't take place for two more years, it was good enough. Can you imagine that? So the Baptists in Virginia were responsible for the freedom of religion being added to our Constitution in in the Bill of Rights. So the influence of preaching God's word without fear of being persecuted it's the goal of the Baptists down through history and specifically in Virginia. And they achieved their goal with the passing of the Bill of Rights, which eventually would take place. Okay? So we have the Constitution was passed in 1788. The Bill of Rights on the second page is in 1791. So again, it took another couple years to get religious freedom in the Bill of Rights. Okay? So, everyone will tell you, what, what is the First Amendment? Can anybody tell me what the First Amendment is, the first part, the First Amendment? First Amendment, I'm sorry. The rights to free speech. When you watch the news, when you turn on 
uh, when you look online, when you look at anything, they will tell you that the First Amendment is the right for free speech. Now, let me read what it actually says, okay? It says, Congress, here's number one, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion okay, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or the abridging the freedom of speech. So freedom of speech was number two or maybe even number three. Or the press or the right of the people to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Number one on, on the Bill of Rights was the freedom of religion. And you just go home and, and, and Google that tonight. Go home and look on the Internet and, and see what do people say the First Amendment is. They will always say, from a secular viewpoint, that it's freedom of speech, which is a great, great right, but yet freedom of religion was first. Okay? And so uh, the Baptists of Virginia specifically were the ones to get freedom of, of uh, religion in the Bill of Rights, which is basically into our Constitution. Okay? All right. So, right now, for 231 years, it's, it's been since the Bill of Rights was put into, into law. As settlers moved west... Uh, the gospel and the Baptist moved also. And if you follow your Baptist roots, you'll find most of the Baptist churches in this area are from Kentucky and Tennessee. They'll, you can trace that lineage back to Virginia, and then you can trace that lineage back to Wales or back to England. You can trace it from there back to Rome and from Rome back, back to Jerusalem. Okay. Uh, the thing that I want to point out tonight is is the fact that we live in a country that is so great is because we have a country that has freedom of religion. The reason, you know, there are a lot of reasons why people will say America is a great nation. Why has God put his favor on our country? Because, number one, we have freedom of religion in this country and because of the Christians that follow God's word in this country. No other country in the world has an area called the Bible Belt. Now, you don't hear that a lot anymore. You know, when I was growing up and as a younger man, you know, you'd hear the Bible Belt a lot. It's that section of, of land uh, in the southeast, basically. It kind of swoops across the, the bottom two-thirds of our country, and yet in that uh, land space alone, there have been more pastors, more missionaries, and more churches sent out than any area of the world. God has used our country for great and mighty things. Because why? Because we, his people are here and they are, they are actually doing what we said at the very beginning uh, of uh, getting the gospel out. Okay. So I want you to turn back in your Bible to uh, 2 Timothy. Maybe you're still there. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I think I started in verse 12. I want to back up to verse 11. 2 Timothy 3.11. And it says, Persecutions 
There's that persecutions again. Persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured. We're ta- Paul's talking here. And he says, but out of them all, the Lord, what? Delivered me. You know, we, we started off at the beginning of the night that says, those that live godly shall suffer persecution. And yet, out of them all, the Lord will deliver us. Okay, what 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 a great uh, verse, kind of to end up with. So, when you want to talk about having re- freedom of religion in this country, you need to find a Baptist and give him a hug because it's the Baptist that have really focused to get God's word in our articles of of uh, con- the Constitution, the Bill of Rights the Declaration of Independence, and all of them were based off the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the man, the Baptist preacher that did the... Uh, i got to get back to my notes here. Turn it back to the right page. The Charter of 1638, uh, the Rhode Island Charter. That guy, 13-page long charter. Out of that charter came the principles... Again, I've said this before, to our Declaration of Independence, Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. And don't miss this. It was written by a Baptist minister who used the Word of God. Okay? So our country is a great country. We've got a great heritage. As long as we stick to God's Word... As long as we preach it, teach it, do discipleship. Now, I don't know about you, but discipleship really changed my life when I went through discipleship because now somebody taught me the Word of God so I could turn around and teach someone else. And so when you're in discipleship, you're playing a major role in getting God's Word out to the next generation behind us. We need to continue to keep doing that. So our, our country is a great country. It seems like it's on the way down. But as long as we stay true to the Word of God, He's going to keep us where we need to be. Any questions tonight? Any, any comments? Any questions? I know I went through a ton of material tonight. Uh, I was just flying low. But um, we live in a great country. We really do. And... Uh, the reason we are, again, living in such a great country is because we follow what the Word of God says and we're keeping it in our hearts and we're living it out in our lives. So I'm going to go ahead and, and close there. Uh, nobody has any questions or if you have any, come up and talk to me later. But um, we need to keep, keep, keep uh, doing what we're doing. Father in heaven, we come before you tonight, Lord. And, and Lord, we do thank you for the heritage that we 